morning. Good morning. Nice to see you. I just want to take a moment to know all these folks online. Hello, some dear old friends, some folks I can't see. Nice, nice to be with you all. We're grateful to be on here in this space with these people. So much uh, appreciation for the practice that here. I, I live in Minneapolis and I'm like, it's going on in St. Paul. <laughs> Someone's taking care of the Dharma in St. Paul. I really, I viscerally feel that and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much and to be included here today. <clears throat> um, before I begin talking about Vasubandhu's three natures, the subject of my talk, I'd just like to um, express my appreciation for the long and continued care of this environment we live in by the Dakota and Anishinaabe people. Uh, I have found that uh, a great way to respond to my understanding that this land, we understand it to be possessed by private entities and governed by the United States, uh, knowing that that whole construction comes through a lot of violence. Um, a great response I found has just been to go and listen to indigenous people and find ways to be in solidarity with them. And uh, If you don't already know, there's some great opportunities at this time. Uh, Honor the Earth, um, which is a predominantly indigenous-led movement, is really doing so great um, in environment and indigenous rights work right now and there's there are opportunities to join in if nothing else just show up at the capitol on february 15th <laughs> big event um and you know honor the earth is a great way to connect to that work and uh minnesota interfaith power and light is partnering with them and makes it very easy to find out how to how to be a part of the work So uh, I want to focus my talk today on Vasubandhu's three natures. This is a subject I've spent a lot of time talking about recently because I, I recently had a book published on the subject called Vasubandhu's Three Natures. I am aware that uh, the words may not have much meaning to you, uh, or maybe you know more about this than I do. All those conditions are welcome. <clears throat> Vasubandhu is a... Uh, Indian Buddhist monk who lived somewhere around the middle of the first millennium, about 1,500 years ago, and an enormously influential figure on many Buddhist traditions. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm just not gonna talk much about the history, so that's all you can get on Vasubandhu. But I can talk for a long time because it's a very interesting character. Um, Vasubandhu is closely associated. Um, one, with he wrote the text, which was the first uh, text that is associated with Dogen Zenji, who founded Soto Zen, a text called the Abhidharma Kosha. Um, <clears throat> but then he becomes known as a part of what's called the Yogacara movement or Yogacara school of Buddhism, which just means uh, yoga practice, or for practical terms, you might just think spiritual practice tradition. Um, and Yogacara is a, is a movement in Buddhism was about integrating early Buddhist psychology with the Mahayana emphasis on collective liberation. And I think in the United States, it is basically the norm to be integrating these two things in many different communities, uh, which is wonderful. That's certainly kind of the way I came to Buddhism. 
but, <clears throat> you know, Vasubandhu and Yogacara teachings give a really beautiful model for how to do it. And they also, it's great because you might think, oh, it's so weird. In the United States, we're integrating psychological ideas in different Buddhist schools. And it's like, yes, that's been happening for a long time. <laughs> Yet again, something we think we're inventing, really, we are not. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, when I say early Buddhist psychology and collective liberation, just to put that in our bones, we're talking about practice in a worldview that enables us to be well and care for ourselves while we're caring for the world and transforming the harmful systems in which we live. <clears throat> which is really why I'm interested in teaching Yogacara. So I didn't uh, come up with the idea of teaching Yogacara uh, really Probably, I would say my main inspiration is clearly Thich Nhat Hanh, who, you know, his vision of engaged Buddhism and a way of being in the world where a person could be healing and be well and also be caring in a broad scope and really looking at um, systemic problems. That was really inspiring to me. It brought me to the practice. And, you know, he really roots his teaching predominantly in Yogacara. I had been making this claim for a while and started to think, did I just make that up? Um, but, uh, I, I talked to some people who studied with him and they said, yes, they thought that was true. And then I had a great moment this fall because I was teaching a weekend course at Union Theological Seminary in New York on Yogacara this fall. And when I got there, one of the students said, did you know that Thich Nhat Hanh got a master's degree here in 1963? And we have his thesis in the library and the subject is Yogacara. <laughs> I'm probably not just making this up. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, that gives a general overview of the approach. So there's a few different main uh, concepts or, or sets of teachings within Yogacara, which is actually a pretty sprawling tradition. So I'm going to be focusing on what's called the Three Natures teaching, which is one of, I would say, the three main ones, along with the Eight Consciousnesses and the idea of projection only. <clears throat> anyway, Three Natures. So... Uh, the three natures, one is very challenging intellectually, so just get ready. This talk just ends up being like, this is, you know, whoa. Well, at least we were together. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyways, uh, three natures is essentially, it's a, like a, a way of looking at the world that is intended to help us understand how to practice liberation. So it... It, it doesn't give you the sets of practices, it gives you a worldview, but the practices can help us develop that worldview and develop our understanding how to practice liberation. So the three natures are the imaginary nature, the dependent nature, and the complete realized nature. The claim of this teaching is that everything is of these three natures. Um, so, thank you. Was I supposed to turn this on? It's on. Okay, it's on. That's what I want to hear, everybody. It's on. Okay, so, thank you, Coach. Uh, so, the three natures are, uh, they are natures that everything already has. Or another way to think of it is anything already has these three characteristics, which is another um term that's used for the three natures, three characteristics. So anything that you see, hear, smell, feel, think, anything, it has three natures. 
So those three natures are the imaginary, dependent, and complete realized natures. Uh, when I start talking and I don't see a clock, I'm scared for you all. Um, <laughs> I wonder, oh, here it lives. Hello. This is our friend who will protect us all. Is it imaginary? Both! Always! Time, surely a construct. <clears throat> so, uh, everything has these three natures. Imaginary, dependent, and complete realized natures. So the imaginary nature of things is what you think they are. Anything that you think is a thing is of imaginary nature, or the way you think of it. That's its imaginary nature. The dependent nature is that things appear to you as they do, dependent on other conditions. And the complete realized nature is that they are not what you think they are. <laughs> ah, so that, that seems straightforward, kind of. Uh, so in case you, if you get, if you grasp that at all, you'll understand how challenging this is. And if you don't, it will end up probably being more challenging. The imaginary nature is what you think things are. And by think, we mean perceive them to be, even on an unconscious level. The imaginary nature is what you think things are. The dependent nature is that they appear to you dependent on other conditions. And the complete realized nature is that they are not what you think they are. So uh, to talk about this a little bit, I'm going to use a little reading from, from this book. This will be the longest reading I'm getting. <clears throat> Every aspect of what we would conventionally call experience is of these three natures. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, and our sense of being itself. For example, the cobalt blue car that I can see outside my window is of an imaginary nature. Whatever I'm experiencing it to be right now, a memory, as I'm currently looking at letters on a screen, or now, as I turn my head to look at it again, whatever I think it is, is a construction of habits of consciousness and imagination. I suspect it will take some time for you to consider this a reasonable or useful claim. And so, dear reader, that's why I'm writing this book. That car is also of a dependent nature. Countless conditions that are not the car create the appearance of a car. Reflected sunlight, ocular nerves, supply chain software, oil refineries, the desire for wealth, and so on. This car is also of complete realized nature. It isn't what I think it is. Recognizing that things aren't what you think they are can radically disarm the patterns of your mind that cause you to suffer and cause suffering. For example, in order to see the car in my normal way, I am usually ignorant of, or ignore, a vast array of conditions on which the appearance of the car depends, conditions that cause suffering in this time of climate crisis. These teachings are here to help us move beyond this kind of ignorance. The so-called knowledge that white people are inherently superior to black people and the purported fact that race exists as a biological truth were confirmed by 19th century scientific experiments, which have since been disproven. This caused and causes incalculable harm. 
This so-called knowledge is imaginary. It arises from conditions, and its complete realized nature is that it is not real. And yet, millions of people thought and still think it is true. Although many of, although many of us do not, the impacts of this view are pervasive. It affects where people live, the jobs we have, the wealth we inherit, our access to education, and so much more. These are alive in how I experience the world. This teaching is here so we may continually grow in our capacity to end and transform harmful patterns of which we are often unaware. By learning to see the three natures of the ideas that maintain harmful systems, we open the way for liberation. The three natures can be misapplied and easily misunderstood. Understanding the imaginary nature invites humility, not grandiosity. It affirms agency. It does not deny experiences. Understanding the dependent nature affirms kinship with all things. It does not deny differences or boundaries. Understanding the complete realized nature brings faith, compassion, and joy. It does not deny suffering. The three natures provide medicine for our ongoing daily sufferings, no matter how small. <clears throat> so, generally, the uh, biggest challenge of teaching the three natures is that when we say things are imaginary, people say, you're telling me my experience or the things I know to be true are not true and they don't matter and I'm not listening to you anymore and that's not helpful. Um, which is a reasonable <laughs> thing to think about. Um, but it is based on a misunderstanding of what the teaching says. So here, in both the cases I demonstrated, uh, a car and race, this teaching says they're not absolutely real things, but they matter because we can see that they matter in the way we experience the world. So even though our experience of the world is an imagination, that really matters to us. When you have a dream, when I have a dream, uh, where there's like uh, somebody chasing me with an axe, it's like, it matters to me. Yeah, I, I wake up, I'm like, ah! So very, that's a common example in Yogacara teachings. We're not saying that this doesn't matter. We're talking about suffering and what we can do about it. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the imaginary nature here. <clears throat> so the, the use of the term imaginary nature, uh, oftentimes in Buddhist literature, it's very common to say that we should view things as imaginary. Very, very common in, in many different Buddhist traditions, from the earliest to the latest. Um, and usually that medicine is intended to give us an opportunity to just be like, oh, I'm not, I don't have this exactly right. And probably most people have had the experience of being able to kind of get a little perspective on the way you're thinking about something, step back and realize it's just thoughts and feel some relief. And that has utility and it is important. But in Yogacara teachings, the use of the idea that things are imaginary is for a paradoxical and, in, in my opinion, more important purpose. It is to reclaim the idea of karma for a tradition that says everything is empty of self-existence. So the idea is we imagine things based on the way we imagine things. That is to say, if you're like, spend all your time imagining that person is a terrible, horrible person who's ultimately foreign to you, 
you will continue to imagine them in the, that way. Each action of perception, emotion, physical activity, or thought plants a seed which will create a similar perception, thought, emotion, or action in the future. Basic idea of karma. Uh, but what we're saying is that all happens within, in this tradition, they say that all happens within a stream of how we look at what's happening, like the mental projection onto the world. So this is about power. In case, uh, just to bring it back down, what we're saying is every moment you have power, you are planting seeds that will create the imagination of the worlds that will be experienced. And it's very easy to fall into unconsciousness and just reproduce the patterns we already have. That's pretty evident, isn't it? That's pretty evident. Uh, yeah, I, okay. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so, we have this ability to offer something. Always. And the thing is, not only do we have the ability, we're already offering it. So Buddhist teachings remind us to realize, wow, this moment is one of, of value and importance. And a couple things about karma, just, to, just in general, teachings tend to say we never know when the impact of that karma will occur. And it's a little bit more complicated to make this argument, so I'm not going to do it. But you really don't know where it will occur, which means that you just, you're, you're putting something out there. It's going to matter. And you can't really control the outcome. So, uh, you know, like feelings, uh, when feelings come up, if we don't really notice their feelings, we're not really seeing them, they tend to just reproduce themselves unconsciously. And I certainly have experienced a lot of this in my life. But wow, I mean, basically what made me come to Buddhist practice and stay with Buddhist practice is I saw that when I came here with afflictive emotions and could sit down and really see the emotion itself, feel the sensations in the body associated with the emotion, and be aware that there were some thoughts that were happening, I could see through that pattern and I could, I could see the previous karma being manifested and I could plant seeds of compassion and awareness. And my guess is most of the people, if not everyone here, has had a taste of this. And basically, you can, there's lots of complicated arguments in Buddhism for why this is true or why it's useful to see it this way. But I'll just say, seems to have worked out for me so far. <laughs> so the other thing that I, I probably won't get into very much in this talk is that in the book, what I demonstrate is that social movements have the same quality. So that is to say, you know, when you put nonviolence into the world, you're putting nonviolence into the world. And when a social movement says what we're doing is nonviolence, then many people plant many seeds of nonviolence, and it has big impact, big impact. Likewise, when a whole nation says we're just going to kill those people, it has a huge impact. So there's a, there's a collective sense here as well as that personal one. But finally, imaginary is trying to bring us back down to like this moment here. It's coming from a lot of conditions. And I can plant conditions so it can be a little better for what's down the road. 
Uh, ooh, I just have to read this short passage. The other uh, implication of calling things imaginary that I really like is it's a celebration of the imagination. So uh, the book is a new translation of Vasubandhu's treatise on three natures, the Trishvabhava Nirvesha, and which is 38 verses long. Each chapter is a commentary on one verse. So I'm not going to read the verse I'm commenting on here, but it will be referred to briefly. This verse upholds one of the central tendencies of Yogacara thought. It affirms that something is happening and denies that it's what you believe it to be. In particular, Vasubandhu here reminds us that the illusion exists. What are illusions for if not joyful engagement? Sometimes people claim that saying things are illusory means we will not or should not care about them. This does not reflect my experience. We naturally delight in and marvel at magic tricks. We walk into plays, movies, songs, and stories willing to be deeply moved or challenged. At the movies, people cry in the dark or cringe in a shock. We create illusions and they transform us. We know that Wonder Woman isn't real, yet she inspires. We offer our whole selves to the experience of the illusions, the stories that artists offer. We can pour our whole selves more deeply into life when we realize that it exists as an illusion rather than something to be grasped. And this ungraspable bit will come back when we get to the complete realized nature. So uh, things are of dependent nature. So, you know, this is an idea that's probably familiar to many people here. Uh, each thing that appears to be like separate is just, you know, looks that way because we're not seeing all the many, many conditions that produced it. <clears throat> um, so we don't even say, in Yogacara, you don't say it manifests, we just say it appears because we're trying to really soften that idea that it actually is an absolute thing. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, I'm just kind of jump thinking that a lot of people may have heard some teachings on the dependent nature of things before. I just say, in a practical sense, seeing the dependent nature for most people involves feeling more deeply connected, and it often feels really good. It often feels really good. When you're with people, when you're in relationship and recognize the profound mutuality you have, it's like, oh, intimacy. Uh, or like so commonly, people come to our Zen Center, and you know, we have we're on the Bidet Makaska. So they'll, you know, come in the next day and be like, oh, I came to meditation and I sat for an hour and then I went out and I looked at, I walked around that lake a hundred times and I felt like I'd never seen it before. I felt so connected to, you know, the trees and the waves moving across the water. So, so when we practice Sazen and we let uh, conceptual capacity of the mind settle down a little bit, then we naturally see or experience connection. Not always, but it's common. It's common. So this is a way of seeing the dependent nature of things. And it's, it's a it's medicine for uh, what Yogacara teachings say is the fundamental driver of human suffering is our sense of ultimate separation from others, any kind of others. 
However, the dependent nature teaching has a uh, maybe not paradoxical, but other implication can be pretty hard to take, which is that there isn't any suffering anywhere that you can be separate from. Um, and that's hard to take. And I mean, I, I bow to Sosan for a beautiful meditation this morning, which was an invitation for us to see this aspect of the dependent nature, to just call it into our hearts. So instead of pushing it away, you know, I like to talk about how being raised in Minnesota, or actually I was raised in Iowa, sorry, raised in Iowa. And, you know, I would say like, well, I, I was in my home, you know, we were aware that racism was like a pervasive phenomenon, but there was a strong tendency to be like, oh, down in the South, they had the slavery and they had the Jim Crow and it's all the racism. And it's like, wow, isn't it just nice to hold that over there? When, when you really look at it, it's right here. And when you look closely, really painfully, sometimes it's right in here. And that's hard to take. It's hard to take. But the thing is, my experience is denying that is more painful than facing it. Now, in the short term, holding it at bay might, might work. You know, As a recovering addict and alcoholic, I can tell you, like, holding suffering at bay, like, in the short term, I'm hammered now. I'm not feeling anything. <laughs> really? I'm not feeling anything. Morphine, it works. There's a reason people take it. But it did not work in the long term. It harmed me. It almost cost me my life. Shattered relationships. I harmed so many other people. The impacts are unknowably vast. So we have an invitation when we're invited to see the dependent nature to just move closer, closer to suffering because we can begin to trust that it's like that's actually where the most profound freedom and intimacy is available and it's true systemically and it's true within our own knots that seem completely hidden from other people <clears throat> so the complete realized nature well, my friends, we've gotten to the good news. I was at a two-hour Christian service yesterday for the ordination of my friend G.S. Dar Brown into the Disciples of Christ. And, oh, my, I got more God than I usually get in a whole year. It was great. Um, by the way, the singing, I don't know. Sometimes I think we got to shape up the singing. Well, I won't do We sing together well, my friends. But it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. And, you know, I don't naturally have a tendency to, uh, for my upbringing to be like, oh yeah, I'm, th this is a religious tradition I'm a part of, which says that everything is already whole and perfect and there's total goodness available right here all the time. And that's what the complete realized nature is about. Inescapable, vast compassion. The total ungraspability or unget rid of ability or ungettability of anything which is how things already are. Because the way we conceive of things, we see a world of objects, which can be grasped or pushed away. And the complete realized nature says that's never true of anything. And so it's kind of a little, there's kind of two sides to that. It's like, well, you're telling me I can't get anything and that's the good news? <laughs> but really, in those moments, 
of profound love and connection in your life, where you're not waiting for someone to be something else or trying to get something from them. Wholeness and goodness and compassion and connection are just available there. It's unnatural. This is not outer space talk. When we talk about emptiness in Buddhism, we're talking about a natural capacity that's available for sentient beings. So, uh, oftentimes when talking about the complete realized nature, um, they will, for conventional terms, we'll talk about uh, the complete realized nature of what's usually understood to be the self, and the conventional nature, uh, complete realized nature of, of what is usually understood to be other. So, at the end of Vasubandhu's uh, 30 verses on consciousness only, the last verse says, this is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. The blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. So you can wave your hands around because what I'm talking about is this. Whatever your this is, is the blissful, inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. I'm not talking about my body especially. This body, whatever your body is, is the blissful body of liberation and the Dharma body of the great sage. So... I'm just telling you what Vasubandhu says. I think it's pretty good. This line is almost paraphrased at the end of Hakuin's Song of Zazen, where he said, this very place is the lotus land, and this very body, the Buddha. So I just want to do two short readings that relate to this um, framing of the complete realized nature of what we conventionally understand to be the self, and the complete realized nature of what we would conventionally understand to be other. So, this is from a chapter called Already Buddha. When I came to Buddhist practice, I was seeking something else. I sought an escape from the anguish I experienced. My therapist told me it was the anguish of trauma from the past reproducing itself. My psychiatrist told me my brain didn't process serotonin properly. My addiction recovery friends called it defects of character, self-will run riot. My Buddhist studies called it afflictive karma. All these ways of looking at it have their utility, and I am deeply grateful for all who have supported me in finding the wondrous, joyful existence of today. When we suffer, when we see the suffering of others, it is right to seek wellness, to seek something else. However, it is also true that there is not something else, that you and I are not and cannot be broken. For if there is brokenness, there must be a wholeness that is elsewhere. This is a duality, and duality is just a habit of mind. And now, on this very place is the lotus land, the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. <clears throat> Recently, I heard a talk by a Dakota elder named Bob Klanderud. He spoke of the total kinship of all life. He told us that the confluence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers near my home on U.S.-occupied Dakota land is called Bedote. For the Dakota, Bodote is the origin of the universe, the land of Genesis. In his words, 
It is Eden. He asked us, now that you know you live in Eden, how will you choose to live? <clears throat> Thank you for your kind attention. Uh, we have some time for other voices, so I would welcome questions or comments, and given the size of the group, short comments are probably most appropriate, so we can have many voices. I don't know how we do, can our, will people just chime in on the online, or how we do that? People can ask questions and they can read them out. Okay, so people can ask questions and read them out. All right, I welcome voices. Okay, go ahead. I'm wondering if this has, how this is related to the three bodies of the Buddha. Three bodies of the Buddha. Yes. Okay. Well, Nirmanakaya, like, which is like an actual person, you know, like a historical figure. That's the imaginary nature. Uh, the Sambhogakaya is related to the dependent nature because it's a, an apparent manifestation in which you can play in liberation. And the Dharmakaya, which is the universe, essentially, is the complete realized nature. So that's a short, short tracking. Because the three bodies are very much a Yogacara, come out of the Yogacara tradition. Uh, did, you have, did you raise your hand? No. Okay. Go ahead. Um, we've talked about in another um, space about how this relates to early Buddhism, the focus. Um, I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So, uh, arguably, how does this relate to early Buddhism is the question. Arguably, um, Yogacara was, they just realized as we got Mahayana teachings that were really emphasizing the emptiness of all phenomena and this sort of uh, collective transcendent picture of liberation, they were like, yeah, but early Buddhist teachings that are a lot more precise and like you look at your consciousness in very careful ways, you know, you analyze things. That's really helpful. Um, and so generally speaking in Yogacara texts, one of the most common ways to frame this is that early Buddhist teachings on mindfulness are very effective at helping heal afflictive emotional patterns. And Mahayana teachings on emptiness are great at cutting through our delusions of separation and alienation. And so to bring this down to a very practical thing for the people in this group, when you practice living, but meditation too, which is part of your life, noticing the emotional state that is present and developing a really good vocabulary for it will really help. So you could develop the early Buddhist vocabulary where you have the list of 50 aspects or whatever, but you don't have to do that, I don't think. The main thing is to practice actually talking to people about how you feel, articulating it internally. Um, but you don't want to get too cognitive if you're a Zazen practitioner. So I, I actually recommend mindfulness of emotions in daily life more specifically than during Zazen, although it will permeate. Um, so anyway, uh, anybody, anything coming in online or no? Maybe not. Okay. Other uh, people want to bring their voice to the room. Yeah. I really appreciated the um, framing of uh, 
dependent uh, dependent nature on the positive, on the uh, you know the uh, example of having meditated and then seeing things together. I don't know why, but I I sort of have locked in what dependent this the dependent karma stuff is <laughs> creates the negative because it creates the stuff I have no control over. I don't know, but but huh. I, I guess that frame just really opened up something. That's beautiful. That I hadn't thought about, you know, that way, but it's true. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. So I'm not sure if people can hear all the comments, but just the positive expression of the dependent nature. I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass right now, which is by, now I can't remember her name. Robin Wall Kimmer. Robin Wall Kimmer. And uh, yeah, you know, she just, she talks a lot about seeing the beauty of the dependency that we have with our, you know, natural environment, plants in particular. And yeah, and she talks quite a bit about how people she encounters who are educated in a Western format tend to think of humans basically as only harming the environment. And she shows how there's a long history of like being in this deeply mutual uh, thing. And it's, it's, it's very moving. Thank you. Brianna writes, uh, what's the name of the book you've been referring to? Uh, this book is what I have written. It's called Basu Bandhu's Three Natures. And I think it's fun to read. I've read it like 80 times. <laughs> uh, Koji, oh, man. Aran Aranya, you go first. You go first. <laughs> um, I really appreciate it in, in one of your passages as well as throughout your talk, um, how you said, you know, that this is a, a celebration of imagination or a celebration of inter interconnection or the fact that we don't know what any of this is. <laughs> um, and then also referencing that it, that doesn't mean that it is there isn't suffering, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. And I think in, you know, in racial equity work, we're often talking about like, yes, race is a story, and it's real. In this case, we're saying race is a story, and it isn't real, and it matters <laughs> um, deeply, right. And so I guess what what might be your perspectives on ways to hold those together to, to practice in that play between those two things? Yeah, yeah, I think a uh, great question. Um, I do uh, specifically in the book talk about how, you know, like most unpacking whiteness trainings I've been a part of, you start by pointing out that race is an invented thing. You know what I mean? It's a fairly recent invention, about 500 years uh, old, as we understand it at this time. And so, uh, you know, it's a social construct, which it doesn't t t take me a big leap to be like, that's an imagination, a collective imagination. Um, that we, that people kind of understand to be an absolutely real material phenomenon. Anyway, yeah, how do we balance um, saying we're acknowledging this is just a construct, uh, but it's the construct we have to work with? Uh, to me, maybe too big of a question here, but I think one of the three, what the three natures does is it gives us practice at playing with the fact that you can't land. And so um, it's like a Zen practitioner, it's like I get a lot of training in that, and that really helps. And then I can show up with people and be like, I'm used to not landing. So I'm not, when I'm sitting in a group of people working on um, equity work or, or racial justice work, it's like, I don't have to be like, here's the, and it's, 
I could be like, we are collectively making something that may be liberative and we can try different views on. And I could just try and sort of model that or be open to it. Um, so in a way, the three natures open up to the practice of being a floating. So hopefully that's helpful. Koji. Um, I hope this is practical enough to be interesting to you. Um, I, uh, the way that I learned kind of Mahayana philosophy is in a Zen context, so a lot of the times the sources weren't really cited, you know, and you kind of have this like marrying of yoga term, the Jamaican philosophy, as like kind of one thing. And then when I went and studied Tibetan Buddhism, and I learned what they call like the four tenets, and I got to find out that Yogacara was kind of like the runner-up in most Tibetan schools. And and I couldn't quite figure out why I kind of like there's the positing of a ground of being or something like that, um, or that there's such a thing as a true nature of mind or something like that. And um, I was wondering if you have encountered this kind of thing where Majanka kind of rests at a place of being more accurate, you know, and how things exist and what the efficacy uh, the frameworks of Yogacara is as a way of interfacing with things. Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I don't know if you could all hear that, but I'm just going to jump in because I just have like two minutes. Yes, um, you know what I'm so grateful is when I'm hanging out with Tibetan people, they're not mean to me. So that's <laughs> because it is very common. Most Tibetan schools say that like the Yogacara is like the, the secondary provisional set of teachings relative to what you may have heard of is like the two truths, Madhyamaka, form and emptiness. That's like two, whereas we have three. Anyway, so yes, it's a whole thing. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not very oriented towards debate, which is highly valued in Tibetan traditions. So, but you know, I've had the opportunity to just talk to people about it and, and you know, have interesting um, thoughts. Uh, what I can say is, from my perspective, the 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 Tibetan view of Yogacara and Majamaka comes from much later commentary tradition. And actually, like I have a Tibetan a scholar of Tibetan Buddhism as one of the endorsers on this book. And I think it's a little bit shocking to see what Basubandhu says, because he's much more careful to constantly remain in non-duality, and which is to say to play with duality, by the way. To be in non-duality is to play with duality. If you're destroying duality, it's not non-dual. That's a dualism. Anyway, so is this getting philosophical enough? We're on a ride, everybody. So uh, anyways, uh, Vasubandhu is very clear uh, that he doesn't want to get us landing and being like, your mind is the absolute truth or some crazy thing like that. Um, but the way Yogacara kind of permeates throughout traditions is quite Quite a long story. This is why I like to teach Vasubandhu because I really think his vision, his vision, is so clear and so beautiful and so committed to this idea that we we cannot arrive at liberation in any other way than how we are now. Like liberation is something that is only available to manifest now, and it's not later, and it's not something else. And it's pretty mysterious, but it happens in relationship. And we can take care of ourselves as we do it. And because we realize it's all relationship, we can take care of each other. So I 
I'm really grateful to have had this time with you and to practice the with you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your wonderful teachings. <laughs>